Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Just Make the Thing, a podcast for people who want to start a thing and keep on making it. I'm Claire Twenty, and today I have the privilege of interviewing Helen Salzman. She is a trailblazer in the podcast world. Beginning when RSS feeds and iTunes pod apps were not a thing, and her podcast, Answer Me This, created with Ollie Mann, is hilarious. The show answers life's biggest, smallest, and often downright ridiculous questions and has the most loyal, committed audience in Britain. It's loved around the world for the duo's rollicking sense of humour and so terrible they are great jingles. The show has won countless awards, received rave reviews, and was even the first non-musical act at the iTunes Music Festival. Helen's husband, Martin Zanz Auswick. Yes, that is right. He took part of her name on when they married. I really love this guy already. Assisted these two with the sound. As the show started just with two mates in a room in January 2007 in their flat in London's Crystal Palace. So isn't that kind of the dream? You start something with some mates and 11 years later it's still going strong and wins a whole lot of awards. Helen's work is exacting. And you'll hear in this interview her passion for editing and language, which comes to the fore in her own podcast about linguistics called The Illusionist, begun as part of the Radiotopia Network in January 2015. In that same year, the show was named iTunes UK's Best New Podcast, awarded Britain's Smartest Podcast, and Saltzman herself was awarded Podcast Champion, a mighty title if ever there was one. Helen is not only a podcaster, but a radio host, comedy writer, an avid crafter, an advocate for women in radio, and a supporter of the British pod industry. She is also, as her brother comedian Andy Salzman so succinctly called her when she lived in his attic, an etymological lodger who now travels the world speaking and creating podcasts from wherever she finds herself. All hail the queen of podcasting, Helen Salzman. For she is someone that started making a thing in 2007 and is still making it 11 years later. Oh, and I met her at a podcast conference in Copenhagen where she spent ages talking to my mum who had no idea who she was and I was shaking in my beat. So thanks so much, Helen. Hello, Claire. <laughs> it has been a long time since we met in Copenhagen over a year ago. I think it's probably our anniversary of meeting right around now. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, the universe <laughs> is amazing. Cool. Okay, well, I had so many questions to ask you when you just sat speaking to my mum for ages at the conference. So I will start with my first one. Um, you make a lot of things. You make quilts with everything is good on it. You make uh, cushions and cricket dolls for Andy Saltzman. <laughs> um, you make dinosaur costumes and books and uh, podcast albums and Christmas biscuits. But the illusionist and answer me this are your my in my opinion two of your greatest creations. Why do you make things? Well, thank you. You're welcome. Um, that's a really good question. I grew up in a house where people 
made quite a lot of stuff. My dad is a sculptor. Um, although that makes it sound like we lived in a very arty house where people were always talking about creativity and that was absolutely not the case. <laughs> but um, both he and my mum were very handy. So if something was broken, they knew how to fix it. And I was always thinking, how do they know all this stuff? How do you know how to fix a roof or to <laughs> cut a tree down? And my mum, uh, she considers herself not a creative person, but it really came from her. So when I was growing up, she used to make toys for me. She did costumes for local plays and still does that, the occasional opera. And um, uh, she used to cook a lot of stuff and she taught me to sew. And I think just growing up around that means you give yourself permission to make stuff and experiment. But even so, I let that go in my teens and didn't really come back to it in, until my mid-twenties when I was freelance and suddenly had quite a lot of time to expend on a ridiculous project. <laughs> was there a moment that made you go, oh, I can start making stuff? Uh, sort of, actually. <laughs> it's really stupid. I had just moved into a shared house with some friends and my brother had given me the DVD box set of the first series of 24. I think this was the year 2004. <laughs> and um, I think it was the first time I really binged watched something. And I thought, I don't want to seem idle while I'm just watching nearly 24 hours of television. And so I started knitting these dinosaurs. I had this pattern left from when I was a child for making these knitted little <laughs> dinosaurs. And so I just cranked out these dinosaurs. And then people who saw them, they thought, oh, I'll take a knitted dinosaur if they're going spare. Because I didn't really want to keep them. I just wanted to make them so that I didn't feel like I was wasting time, even though I was just wasting time multitasking on two pointless <laughs> things. <laughs> and the other thing was around my mid-20s, around that time, a friend of mine, Josie Long, who's a comedian who tours in Australia a lot, um, she started a comedy night and she got me involved. We used to make different decorations and props for it every month because it would have different themes. And um, I did some stuff on some of her shows. There was one where she had a 12 night run at a theater and I embroidered a different part of her show each night to make into a quilt, which I still haven't finished. It was 2007. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that when you're making things that it doesn't matter often if you necessarily finish them? Sort of, but when it's a physical thing like a quilt, then you have that bag with the quilt <laughs> in it staring at you, telling you, I am unfinished and I've been unfinished for a decade. But for me, it's the process of making stuff that is more compelling than having the result at the end. So maybe that explains my failure to finish things. But also, I suppose, because it's not a necessary thing to do. So it can be hard to justify the time to yourself mm. uh, doing these things. Mm. And just buying out your own guilt later is not a good enough explanation. <laughs> yeah. If you're thinking, well, I should be working, should be trying to find work, should be cleaning. Everything's better than cleaning. Yeah, yeah. yeah I 100% agree with that. In priorities. Yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Though I think making dinosaurs is probably more important than cleaning and mixing them <laughs> for sure. Strongly recommend. Yeah, absolutely. So what, why did you start podcasting then? From that point, you started making dinosaurs and then why did yeah. you start podcasting? Um, I started podcasting. First Answer Me This came out 2nd of January 2007 and a few weeks before a friend of mine from college, Ollie Mann, uh, said, do you fancy doing a podcast together? Because we'd done some stuff on student radio a few years before and enjoyed it. And then both of us had fancied getting radio careers and those had not been forthcoming. And uh, he thought podcasting is going to be the next big thing. And he'd been quite ahead of the curve on blogs. And I had not heard a podcast and I didn't really know what they were and I had no relevant skills. 
but I also had no reason to say no. So I said yes. And then we learnt the relevant skills just by doing, because back then there wasn't really very much to tell you how to do this stuff. And now when I see what people go through when they're launching a show, I'm so glad (laughs) that we were just kind of ignorant because people really get wound up. They find out too much stuff and they think, oh no, I need to spend $800 on a mixing desk and blah, blah, blah. And you don't really, and you don't need $300,000 and a team of eight and six months to develop it I think it's much better just to launch yourself in and worry about a lot of the stuff later yeah yeah we definitely did that our first episodes of the podcast are recorded on James's phone <laughs> and just put out there it's no shame in it no right I'm putting out an episode of the illusionist this week that was recorded on my phone oh I love that I didn't want to have to carry my mics around that day it was raining didn't want them to get wet yeah. <laughs> well, that brings me to another question. Where do you write and edit and podcast? Really wherever I am. And at the moment, that is very broad because a few months ago, um, my husband and I had to find a place to live. We'd been kicked out of our flat in London and we were living temporarily in my brother's attic, which was very nice, but not a permanent solution. <laughs> and um, I have a very portable job and I'd been traveling a lot since starting The Illusionist and I was away for several weeks at a time and and I said to him, oh, if it was just me, I'd probably just keep moving around in different countries for a while. And eventually that's what we decided to do. And uh, he had a proper job. Uh, He was a senior academic and um, gave that up. So we've been traveling for a few months and at the moment we're in Tasmania (laughs) and uh, we went to South America and North America and um, Southeast Asia and, and quite a lot of different places. So there's been a lot of building recording forts in cupboards in airbnbs and stuff like that but it's it's nice i was just in one room when i was living in london i was doing everything in my living room and i was often there for um 16 hours a day and then sleeping for the rest and not seeing people or other things (laughs) so at least now the rooms change there's variety (laughs) different views outside of your window is always yeah exactly yeah looking through all of the things that you have made and done it just struck me that there is so much work and time that goes into it How do you manage that amount of time that it takes to do everything that you do? Not great. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I don't get to do as much of the handicraft making anymore, which is a shame because it's a really good vent for feelings. And also the consequences to me are very different to those of making a show. If I am not really enjoying handicrafting the thing, it doesn't matter. But if I'm not enjoying the show, I still have to put it out because it's my job. And I don't read as much And I don't see my friends nearly as much as I would like. So the first thing really to take the hit was my social life when we started Answer Me This because it was weekly then and it was taking three days every week and the rest of the time I had to search for work and do the work because of being freelance. And I'm I'm glad that I did it because the effort paid off in making a show that people wanted to listen to. But I wouldn't lie to anyone and say that it easily slots into your life. If you want to make a good show, it will probably take quite a long time. Yeah, and I I read that you suggest to people to record 10 episodes before you even put it out to air. Not exactly. I am a believer of putting it out pretty quickly because um, I think that compels you to keep going with it. Otherwise, I think if you said to someone you have to have 10 episodes prepared, then they might never actually get to the end of that and and release anything. Whereas if you say, okay, I'm going to release this one, even though it's not perfect, and I'm going to release the next one this time next week, I have to do it then you kind of push through the pain barrier a bit quicker because often your early 
episodes are not as good as you want them to be and they're not as good as the things that inspired you to make a show Mm -hmm. but I usually suggest to people that they don't do a big promotional drive until they're happy with the show and that usually takes 10 episodes or three months I reckon don't do your big publicity drive until you feel like the show has found its legs and it's something you can be proud of because people will give it one chance really to review it or to become a repeat listener and we've had friends who listened to the first answer me this and it wasn't good. None of us thought it was good. <laughs> but uh, then years later, they happened to hear another episode of the show and they were really surprised that it was better because they hadn't revisited it since then. Some friends. Yeah, right? I know. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But actually, I usually do people the favor of not listening to their show until they've made a few episodes of it, because then you can kind of see the pattern of what they're trying to do, even if they're not able to completely achieve that thing yet. Mm. You, you get it more. Mm. How do you know if something is good? Mm, that's very personal, isn't it? It is, yeah. About my own stuff or other well, people's. Well, about yours, first up, I think. I mean, I kind of hate everything I do. <laughs> oh, so do I. Uh, that's good to hear. <laughs> oh, okay. Good, good, good. Um, maybe that's, and particularly when you've been working on something a long time, you just want to get it out of the way and never have to contemplate it again. <laughs> it's kind of like put, putting on a swimsuit that's still slightly damp. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like going the, the final stages of dealing with a show. Um, so occasionally I get a kind of fizzy feeling where I think, oh, this is going to work. And But oftentimes it's really just forcing myself to the finish line when I'm really <laughs> annoyed by myself and I can't stand listening to myself anymore. <laughs> but I think you have to just cultivate your editorial judgment and allow for this fact that you might not enjoy your own work. I don't listen to shows that are like the shows that I make. And if I didn't make them myself, I don't know if I would listen to my shows. But that's because my taste and what I can make are not necessarily the same thing. And I think that's fine. Uh, you, you just, I think you just have to be generous with yourself that it's not necessarily going to be fun all the time or much of the time, but it can still be very worthwhile. Mm. Yeah, are you a perfectionist? No, I think there's a lot of sloppiness in the work, but I am quite, hmm, well, now I'm thinking, but then you spend all that, all that time over yeah. it. I think there are certain ways, certain ways in which I'm definitely not a perfectionist, like audio quality, but other things. I just want the shows to be as tight as possible and to edit out as much as I can whilst it still seems quite relaxed and it makes sense. So I'm sort of a minimalist, but I'm not sure most people listening to the stuff would think there's a minimalist. Because it sounds quite crowded. Mm. It sounds really well crafted and edited. When I listen, Aww, no, it it does. You. When I listen to your show, I mean, I'm sure you've heard this a thousand times, but you feel like someone. It never hurts to hear. <laughs> <laughs> okay, strap in, and I'll tell you what I think. No, I I really <laughs> you, you can hear that each beat and each sort of second has been thought about before it's there like it's there for a reason and I think that's the difference um with editing what what do you believe about editing I was editing books before I was editing audio so I think I always preferred having a finite amount of material and just having to shape it into the best version of itself that I could Mm. and that was working on other people's books but then working on my own audio it's the same And a lot of it is just feeling like it's a good use of the listener's time. So I try and put myself in the mindset of somebody who has no investment in me and no investment in the show and somehow is listening to it is what I'm giving them comprehensible if you come with no background knowledge at all. And is it a decent use of this amount of their time? Because there's a lot of other internet they could be playing with Mm -hmm. rather than me. So that's the guiding principle, really. 
with Answer Me This, the editing is to tighten it up. It's a comedy show. Some things you want the freedom to have a discussion that goes off on a tangent. And if the tangent works, great. And if it doesn't, you get rid of it and you don't have the fear of having to use it, even if it doesn't work. So it's quite liberating there, but it's it's a fairly straightforward process. The Illusionist, it's interviews. And I'll often talk to people where I'm not sure what I want out of them. I, I prefer that. I am interested to hear about stuff I don't know. So often the shape of the show doesn't happen till later. I'll get them to talk and talk and talk and then later structure it into something more specific and briefer. So there, the edit job is much more of a creative job, I think. But I think it's a very underrated part of the creative process generally. I think there's editing involved in practically everything. We're just not necessarily thinking about it, but painters are making subconscious editorial decisions all the time, for instance, or how you crop a photograph or in written work. So why not in audio as well is a question that I think more people should ask themselves. <laughs> everyone should everyone should edit their podcast a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds to me a little bit like sculpting, like your dad did sort of shaping something mm from a, a bigger piece of clay. Yeah, the thing that I always found so hard to get my head around with my dad's process is that he'll make a metal skeleton for the sculpture and then he will put on different layers of different surfaces depending on what kind of effect he wants to achieve and this will take months. Mm. So he, months into the process, might realise that the skeleton, like the armatures are not at quite the right angle and the effect is ruined and the piece doesn't work. So I like having something that is much quicker to produce and where I can change it fundamentally until very late on the process. Mm. And then and then put it out sort of immediately to an audience rather than having like months yes. and months and years um, to wait to get feedback. How do you cope with feedback from people? <laughs> I think I'm pretty lucky so far because podcasting has been a, a small enough medium that you tend only to get listeners who are into it and it has been difficult for them to deliver feedback. It's not like YouTube where you might stumble upon a video and hate it and then put a very abusive comment right there underneath. With podcasting, you can't comment on the sound file you're listening to. Mm. Um, so by the time you find a way to deliver feedback to me, your rage may have cooled <laughs> and you might not even bother. So generally, the listen and, and if you're not enjoying a show, you just stop listening to it and never listen to it again. That is the healthy response. So I think... The feedback is skewed towards quite positive feedback. And and it can be really interesting as well. The listeners are intelligent and um, they tell me quite a lot about their lives, which I love mm. very voyeuristically. <laughs> and they'll often come up with some really great ideas for shows as well. So I'm extremely fortunate in that respect. And they feel this very personal connection with people on podcasts because we're right there in their ears and they've chosen us. And even though podcasting is much bigger, I think there's still that intimacy with a lot of shows especially mine where it sounds a little bit homemade and um, there are not many people involved. So it doesn't sound like a, a production with a lot of layers of different people between me and the listener. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's one of the strengths of what you do? I really like that. I really like that about podcasting in general. It feels like you can get something quite raw and quite directly from someone's head even if they have put a lot of artistry into it. Um, it hasn't had to go through a commissioning process. The commissioner is the listener. They decide whether or not they want to listen to it. It's not a channel saying, we're not going to make this thing. And I hope even while podcasting is getting bigger and more professionalized in the, in the States, I think more than Australia or Britain so far, mm. I hope you still get this kind of wildness to it where people who wouldn't be on TV or the radio 
do make a podcast and it's really brilliant. Mm. Do you think with podcasting and creating it into a career, which is now what you do, you you work full Mm. time doing what you do. Um, lucky me I know I know we do the same over here in Australia and it's it's sort of the dream job isn't it how did you manage to do that so what are the things that you do with your show that enable you to do it as a career oh I think a lot of it was just luck and timing um it wasn't very strategic because for the first many years of podcasting I didn't think I would love to do this as a job because there's no point having that thought because it just couldn't happen. Um, Answer Me This did make some money from a few years in because we got a lot of jobs off the back of it. So it's productive in that way. We got radio jobs and we wrote a book of it. and But it raised a bit of direct income from listeners buying old episodes and sponsorship. But it wasn't quite enough to live on. But it was, after a few years, paying for the time that we spent on it and a bit more. And then The Illusionist came along. And that's part of um, the Radiotopia Collective where, where Roman Mars founded it in 2014 after he did a fundraiser for his show 99% Invisible on Kickstarter and raised so much money that he thought I don't need all this for myself so I'm going to use it to enable other producers I know to make stuff that otherwise they couldn't afford to make and um, that was very nice of him (laughs) and uh, it's, it's still pretty rare no one else has really launched a network on those principles and so I was able to go full time with that when I started The Illusionist for Radiotopia in the beginning of 2015 So most of the money for that comes from ads and a little bit from listener donations. But I think 2015, even though it was the start of the podcasting boom, because Serial had just been a mega hit, it wasn't like the podcasting boom has been in the last few months where it feels like so many shows are in development for TV and film and so many big splashy things are being launched all the time and a lot of big media companies and not even media companies are getting in on it. And you think, why? (laughs) Um, So I feel lucky that I got in before that, because I think if you're starting now, you might have much higher expectations of it being lucrative, but there is more noise out there and it can be a bit harder to find people that love the noise that you're making. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's so many shows out there. Yeah. What are you proudest of in terms of the hijinks that you've got up to and the stunts that you've done with Anthony And and with the illusionist, but um, yeah. answer me this particularly. Ooh, I don't know that it's happened yet. I'm gonna keep it open. I'm very proud that something we built is a career for me, but I'm also proud that there's a bit of a podcasting community in Britain, and some of that is because I went out there and tried to get people to meet up and be together and to communicate with each other. So I'm not claiming full mm-hmm. responsibility, but I think I did agitate for that to happen, and I would love for there to be more of that. What am I most proud of? I don't think my mum worries as much about me anymore as she did. (laughs) Why did she worry about you? I think she was worried about my long-term career prospects. But she married a sculptor, so... (laughs) (laughs) I think at least she thought it's not going to be as bad as that. (laughs) Yeah, that's so funny. I think that our parents always worry about us, I'm sure, no matter how old we are. Yeah. But being a creative and and making a living, I think it's such a privilege. It, It just... Is so exciting when you can and, and do. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's amazing. That brings me to a funny moment. I wonder if you remember when we were in Copenhagen at that conference and we had to stand on the stairs <laughs> and take a photo as women in podcasting. Um, and I remember, I don't know if it was you or someone said, I feel like I'm at a debutante ball. Um, 
<laughs> I know you um, do work with sound women and I just wanted to ask you about that, about being a woman in this whole comedy podcasting world. Yeah, it's been very different actually working in the USA because Britain, trying to get into the radio industry was a lot more difficult as a woman. And um, I worked for a while with this lobby group, Sound Women, that did research into how many female voices there were on the radio and it was like a fifth of the number of male voices and even mm. that didn't break down how many of them were just there to do the weather and to laugh at a man's jokes so that was depressing mm -hmm. and there's this research that gets quoted all the time that may not even exist people cite it and they say oh it was in the 70s but no one living has actually seen a copy or can show a copy that says that people don't enjoy listening to women including women don't enjoy listening to women. But if you don't hear women, then it feels odd to hear women. I remember listening to the radio when I heard the first woman that I ever heard on the radio and I thought, this is a bit wrong. Wow. It was just a different style, but you internalize all of that. And then in the US, it seems like there are a lot more women involved on mic and in production. And, and that's important. There's, they have a lot more power to make stuff and to build teams and so on. Um, so their industry is not perfect and, and they're very different shapes of industries. But in Britain, I wasn't really conscious of sexism until I was working in radio. And then it just felt immensely frustrating. So the great thing about podcasting is I don't at the moment have to deal with the British <laughs> radio industry. Uh, it sounds a lot similar to the Australian radio industry. Ah, oh, brilliant. Mm, yeah. Mm. And I think that that idea that women are there to be like, oh, stop it, Gary. Oh, oh, get on the straight and narrow. <laughs> You're naughty, Gary. Oh, right. Exactly. That that yes. whole idea that we're some kind of bauble and also some kind of yep. way of keeping men in check or, or something is so annoying because often I want to be the one derailing the whole kit and caboodle. And you, yeah. Have you had to deal with a lot of online kind of commentary or um, negative stuff being a woman in comedy? I remember uh, getting an iTunes review for Answer Me This that said, I don't usually find women funny, but Helen is almost as funny as a man. <laughs> and I was like, way to make a compliment, really insulting. But generally, no, because I think in Answer Me This, n none of us are really skewing towards gender binary paradigms, particularly. Ollie is not a particularly stereotypical masculine man in his sensibilities and the way that we relate to each other as well um, feels very much as equals. And um, the other thing is that I don't get criticised that much and I think it's because I have quite a low voice mm. and an English accent and a lot of the criticism women get, they're American women, their voices sound quite young and might be a bit high and they might have vocal fry. And I have vocal fry, I just did a bit. Lots of people have it, lots of men have it, but people criticize it in women's voices particularly. Mm. And I think they don't notice it as much in men's voices or English accents. What's vocal um, fry, if you don't mind me asking? So I've been trying to learn how to do it on command and I can't quite, which is frustrating. <laughs> I thought I should learn it just to annoy these people that hate it. <laughs> I, I had never noticed it or knew what it is until I read a review of the first series of Serial, which criticized Sarah Koenig for having this thing called vocal fry. So I looked it up and it's where your vocal cords kind of make a creaky sound. Maybe you go down at the end of a sentence and um, it sounds a little bit like you've just woken up. So I think it's pretty cute. But when I first heard about it, I suddenly heard it everywhere. I wasn't even aware of it before. And then I was aware that people hate it. And then I was trying to unpick the sort of visceral reactions that we have to people's voices, because I'm not going to pretend that I 
hear everyone's voices and think, oh, lovely, great. Mm. I think we are fairly hardwired to make assumptions and have reactions. But I was thinking, okay, so why does this voice irritate me? And why do I have these prejudices? Why do I think that women shouldn't sound young? You know, what does that say about how we allocate power? And so I think I've really just bashed on the head most of my vocal prejudices, Mm. um, just trying to wonder why I have them. And a lot of it is just, just... patriarchal structure and now it's very rare that I hear a voice that I don't like at all but pretty much every woman I know has had a lot more vitriol than I have had Mm. and it's annoying isn't it because they're not listening to what we're saying are they they're just listening to the voices in which we say it it's a way of dismissing Mm. our words absolutely yeah we get I do this show sometimes with my friend Chanel and we both have high-pitched voices and quite young sounding voices even though we're in our 30s and Often people then will say things like, oh, you sound exactly the same. I can't tell who's who or, you know, those kind of things. Or even, yeah, they just say things like, oh, it's great to hear a female-led podcast and it's actually okay or pretty good, you know, that kind of (laughs) like it's a surprise that we might make something that you might want to listen to. Yeah. Yeah, and I did think that actually when listening to Answer Me This and I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today to the illusionist too that your voice is a lower tone and really soothing and I was thinking oh I wish I had a voice like that and now no you have a nice voice keep it oh thank you (laughs) but you do even like I I laugh a lot too and that's I think how dare you I know how dare I be laughing and enjoying myself (laughs) but but I think that is a thing with women too that as almost a defense mechanism we often laugh a lot sometimes too I wonder or if people find that grating yeah I don't know it's a it's a complex thing being a woman in this industry that one I think is hard to know because often when I'm listening to male podcasters and they're just laughing too much at each other's jokes I notice that too because when it sounds like someone on a podcast is enjoying themselves more than the listener I think something's gone a bit wrong there but yeah there's so much you can be worried about Claire thanks to people imposing their prejudices upon you Mm. And yet you have given yourself permission to have a voice. And I think that is a big step for a lot of people. And once you've done it, it's very liberating. Mm. Yeah, that's the joy, isn't it, in podcasting that you do just have to put your voice out there. And at the end of the day, the fact that you're creating is sometimes gives you more joy than whether or not everybody out there enjoys it, I think, too. Why do you think you need to create? Well, now it's my job. I think I'm so lazy that I'm not sure I would create if I wasn't (laughs) financially incentivized. Um, (laughs) I do think that I am not that employable in normal structures. I always found it unlikely that I would have a career in a hierarchy because I never started working in a hierarchy that I thought I want to ascend this. And Mm. office environments I can do without and I quite enjoy solitary working at weird hours. Mm. And therefore that often puts you in a lot of creative professions. But I feel like a very practical person. It's very rare that I feel like a creative person. 
And I think a lot of creativity is practicality. Maybe maybe not for everyone else. Maybe everyone else is on a sort of beautiful cloud <laughs> uh, being, being artistic. Um, but I don't feel that way. Oh my gosh, this is such a good question. I don't really have an answer. It's hard to imagine now that I am able to do it, having a life in which I don't have this platform upon which to express myself. Mm. So now it'd be hard to give that up. I think the other stuff, you know, the sewing and things, it's just nice to make something that didn't exist before. And I think that extends to the audio as well. It's very satisfactory to have that feeling where you look at something, you think, well, I made that. I put that into the world. Mm. If it's something good and not a nuclear bomb. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Do you think also there's something childlike about it? that kids kind of innately do that and sometimes we get grown up and and end up in an office and Mm. forget about the juice of life is that kind of that ability to make stuff that wasn't there before I think there are so many reasons why people no longer do the stuff that we do as kids I remember going um, pottery painting with some friends my husband loves going pottery painting and um, some of those friends hadn't painted anything since they were in junior school and they were just really shocked at how fun they found it. And um, I think you you forget about these things and also you don't give yourself permission to do them. Or it seems like if you're going to do them, it requires a lot of commitment. And I think also for a lot of people, they feel like they're part of a system where you have to do things for a reason. So if you're not getting paid, why would you bother doing something? But there are other people who are very good at making music or painting or or whatever their outlet is just for the sake of doing it I don't think I am one of them Mm. Uh, I think I need a lot of external pushing to do anything Mm. yeah I'm the same I set up our business I have a lot of people harassing me all the time for deadlines (laughs) (laughs) Do, do do you set your own deadline for that reason so you've got that sense of urgency oh the deadlines answer me this we set our own deadlines but it was easy to keep those because Ollie and I would force each other to keep them. With The Illusionist, the deadlines are really set by the advertisers. So when an episode is late, it causes problems with the advertisers. So it sounds quite cynical, but if I didn't have that, I'd probably not make anything. <laughs> because I can't I can't trick myself with the false deadline. I'm very good at busting deadlines and procrastinating. I love to hear that because that's me. My husband sets his own deadlines and he's so strict with them and I'm always, I could do anything else. I'd do cleaning even than do the creative yeah. thing that I, I should be doing. Yeah, you know it's bad when you're resorting to doing cleaning instead of the other thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I'll be stacking the dishwasher and James will come in and go, uh, you got something that you have to do, don't you, that you're in here in the kitchen. I loved a TED talk that you did and I wanted to ask you a little bit about just a few things and a phrase that you said. Why do you think writing is a form of time travel? Is that the headline of the talk? Because uh, I don't think I came up with it. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, it was. It is interesting though. We've, we've, we have been alive in very rapidly changing times for formats and media, but things that have been written down on a page some of those have lasted for thousands of years. The book is a very old format. And if we have the relevant knowledge, we can read stuff that people 2000 years ago wrote. And um, it can be as fresh as if they wrote it yesterday. So in that sense, yes. Um, although you still, every every written thing is still a product of its time. You might just not realize the ways in which it is. Like th- there are jokes that Shakespeare makes that I wouldn't realize a jokes because I didn't know that that word had a particular double meaning at the time or he was referring to something weird that the queen had done at the time. But uh, I said, but, and I didn't actually have a sentence to move on to. 
<laughs> That's right. We can just laugh at the fact that you said but, which my kids, I used to be a teacher. My kids used to find that hilarious whenever I said but <laughs> in my class. Uh, yeah. Simple pleasure. Hilarious. We, yeah. Which brings me to comedy, actually. Um, what do you enjoy about comedy? Um, I don't consider myself a comedian and I've never called myself a comedian, but I did grow up in a very funny household. Um, I'm the youngest of three and there's quite a big gap between me and my brothers because I was a mistake. So I was very aware early on that my brothers were there telling funny stories about things that had happened to them that day or whatever. And that if I were to speak, I would really have to have some material. It was quite a verbally competitive environment like that. And I think also just when you are an insecure child, it's one way to avoid getting bullied to cultivate a fairly quick fire sense of humor. So it's always been useful in that way. Uh, and, and people appreciate humor, don't they, into so many different contexts. It can make information more palatable and it can be a real bonding thing. And then my brother Andy became a stand-up. And so during my late teens and early 20s, I saw a lot of comedians and um, saw a lot of different kinds of gig. And it can be a really interesting art form, depending on who's doing it. And met a lot of nice people and I, I did quite a lot of comedy adjacent things so I wrote some weird little plays and I did the onstage embroidery for Josie and stuff like that but I never did stand-up because I never really wanted to monologue as a form of communication and also I don't really like having to say the same thing twice and when you're a stand-up you could well do the same set hundreds if not thousands of times so podcasting is kind of perfect I think you don't have to go out in front of a live audience that hates you if uh, they're not finding you <laughs> funny. You can just say the stuff once and then put it out and you never have to think about it again or unless you've made some horrific mistake and everyone keeps reminding you of that. <laughs> yes, that is true. Has that ever happened to you? Uh, yes. Oh, yeah, lots. <laughs> <laughs> or sometimes, yeah, uh, no. And also because when a listener hears something that you put out years ago, it's fresh to them, so we'll still get reminded of plenty of mistakes we have made uh, seven years ago and answer me this. We can't even remember what they're talking about. Yeah, that's kind of like time travel for yourself, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I do not like travelling back in time to myself. <laughs> no, I found that Facebook is an interesting thing with that. I mm, when people With the memories. Yeah, the memories and the what you write. So with Messenger, it's like seven or eight years now, of me writing to people and if some like an old friend messaged me on Facebook the other day and I hadn't spoken to that person for five years six years and so you know my early 20 self writing with like capital not capitalized eyes and and love spelt l-u-v <laughs> and <laughs> and all those sorts of things it's a strange thing to see yourself back. Well, we didn't have autocorrect then. No, we didn't. We didn't. Absolutely. I wanted to play a quick game with you actually now, now that we're okay. talking a little bit about wordplay. It's not really a game. It's just me saying words and <laughs> I'd like you to say what you think about them. Okay. So Luxembourg. Luxembourg is um, a very, very tiny country in Europe. In And in late 2007, Answer Me This had become quite successful in Britain. Uh, we were number 21 on the iTunes chart and we couldn't get above that because it was full of celebrities and BBC shows. So we thought, what's the world's smallest country with its own iTunes store? We'll go there and try and break the charts there. 
So Luxembourg turned out to be it. So we drove to Luxembourg and spent a day there doing all these ridiculous things. We uh, we made gingerbread and um, handed it out at a Christmas market with a leaflet in two languages telling people how to subscribe to our show. And people there are not into prankery. <laughs> um, there's a lot of diplomats and bureaucrats in Luxembourg. They're not into street frivolity and yet by the end of the day the country is so very small that our show was at number three (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing there's something so wonderful about imagining Luxembourgians with their ginger biscuits just going what's a podcast and putting it into their yes yes because this was 2007 the iPhone had only just come out the first generation one it was a real fiddle to get podcasts and most people didn't know what they were and we're in a foreign country and they didn't care it's a very charming place i would recommend it particularly at christmas have a wonderful christmas market oh that sounds like something i'll have to do have to experience it they're probably expert podcasters now you might have just started the luxembourg podcast industry right maybe i like to think so okay my next phrase is crystal palace oh crystal palace the neighborhood in london that um we lived in for 10 years um that was where we started podcasting we were living in a flat in the top of a church so it had lovely acoustics and um it's named after a big glass exhibition center that was there from i think 1854 until 1936 and it was full of wonders of the world i.e things that the brits stole from the world and then it burnt down uh, a fire that could be seen from five counties and there's still bits of desolate ground where it used to be because there are occasionally campaigns to rebuild the crystal palace but no one can agree on (laughs) how or why you seem to love living in high places like in the attic yeah as well I, I do actually yeah i like to be able to see more than into the window of the house next door it's nice to have a bit of a view yeah and to look at the sky mm, absolutely um yeah i'm with you right there what is your favorite word oh you can't make me choose one <laughs> they're all dependent on each other being around <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> well is do you get, do you have a group of words or one that you're fascinated with at the moment at the moment i am a bit of a tip with um endangered languages and um it's been very fascinating to find out about them a lot of them are endangered because of english so i feel um some personal guilt but it's been very interesting um so we went to patagonia because we don't live anywhere we went to patagonia in argentina and we went to these welsh speaking towns there and people don't really speak welsh in many places apart from wales the small country of britain and argentina 12000 kilometers away And I've been speaking to people in Australia about Australia's indigenous languages, of which there are at least 250. But there were concerted efforts to stamp out the languages and, of course, the people who were speaking them. So it's not easy subject matter and it's pretty upsetting because a lot of it is genocide related. But it's it's extremely important to record this stuff and also just for me as a as a native english speaker and and not even of an uncommon dialect of the majority dialect of english just to understand what english did to other places and other people and what is lost when you when you have a language you're not allowed to speak because it's disadvantageous to you to speak it you might you might be economically disadvantaged or you might be killed for speaking it and when you speak a majority language, you don't have to worry about that. But there's so much culture that can be lost when you wipe out these languages. Mm. That was depressing. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's fascinating. My uncle is a composer and he moved to Papua New Guinea when he was in his 20s. Whoa. Yeah, I know. and lived in a, he's a bit of a free spirit, but he did a lot of that um, sort of recording of the native languages in Papua New Guinea for that same reason, because a lot of it, you know, in settlement was 
it was being lost and hadn't been written down a lot of the native languages. And my another uncle of mine is or was up in the Kimberleys and studied some of Indigenous dialects, trying to kind of preserve and, and help to keep those alive because so much of our culture lives within our language, doesn't it? The way that yeah. everything is phrased, the patterns of speech then sort of reflect what we know about, about culture too, I think, which... Yeah, it's heartbreaking when you think about what the Indigenous people have, have been through in Australia but globally. Yeah. Mm. And then the sort of the British role in all of that too is, um, yeah, this is just a complete side note, but I was teaching for a while in an Indigenous community up in the Kimberleys for a year and we did a lot of research into teaching two-way, um, so teaching mm. kids. Yeah, so it was about language and how kids up there have English but then a blend of English and their own language within the community and we needed to create sort of texts that would have the sort of I don't know mainstream English sentences but also with their version of English that they speak just within their own community above so and then Mm. the third level of that is that then they have their own native tongue as well but Often kids, and I think Indigenous communities, well, in where I was working anyway in the Kimberleys, didn't understand that there was a difference between the English that they were speaking and then the mainstream level of English. And so just showing them in written word that there was a difference enabled them to be able to live two ways. And some of the Indigenous sort of leaders in our country are really master skilled at that, at kind of operating in English, but in in two ways so they can speak within their communities. Yeah. And anyway, I could go on for ages about it, but it's. Yeah. yeah. It's a huge deal. Yeah. That's fascinating. Mm, Yeah. It's really fascinating. And just that light bulb that goes on when the kids sort of realize that one of the reasons they're having issues with reading is that the English that they're speaking is a, is a different version of the English that's written down. And so seeing their version of English written down, anyway, is um, really yeah. empowering. It's very validating. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, because it's not that they're not speaking um, correctly, it's that they're speaking just a different dialect in a way of English. So Yeah, yeah. and also the, the notion of correct speaking is an oppressive notion. Mm. Mm. What do you mean by that? Um, it's uh the the rules are invented by humans none of the rules and none of the words predate humanity and yet there can often be attitudes that these are so entrenched and have been like this forever and they really haven't language evolves as people use it and so when you correct someone on their usage i think as long as you can understand someone then the language is performing its function and then there are certain points you might want to include in the way that you use the language because you might want to get a certain effect. But fundamentally, if you are understood and you can understand the other people, then it is working. But correcting the way someone's using it, and I've been very much guilty of this myself so much in my life, it's a way of putting them down and, and disrespecting what they're trying to tell you. Um, and a lot of this was done when English was asserting itself as a dominant language and a dominant culture in countries that England colonised. Do you think that in the current political climate we're in with Trump in the White House, that the way that we communicate in in written word on Twitter and on social media is also having an impact in the way people understand each other? 
There are people doing a lot of studies into Trump's use of English. I remember when it was just the campaigns leading up to the election and they said he's using vocabulary up to a, I think a fifth grade level or a second grade level. And mm. people might interpret this, him not being very bright, but the brilliance of it is that everyone can understand him. His message is getting across to everybody because he's using very common words and quite a narrow vocabulary. And I think he knows what he's doing in terms of creating impact with his verbal choices. And he does manage to create catchy phrases. I don't want that to sound like a compliment, but he really does. Those phrases really stick. Crooked <laughs> Hillary, sad exclamation yeah. mark, called Fifi. People oh, love it. What was? But I think they do. They love it. Uh, Even um, I don't. Spygate came out the other day. Uh, I think um, the thing is, though, people concentrate too much on what he's saying without thinking it's like a strong wind blowing. He doesn't care about the consequences of what he's saying. It's just they've looked at it with the same approach that they would approach other people and other people in political positions where they think they have some experience and some reasoning behind what they're saying and therefore you should be judged upon those things whereas he doesn't care at all he's not invested in the outcome the consequences of his actions are never really something that he's had to deal with so i don't think you can have the same linguistic expectations so i don't follow him on twitter and i don't tend to engage when there's a lot of brouhaha about him saying Fifi or something because I feel like it's distracting from the terrible things that he really means and is really doing. Yeah, I don't even sometimes think he knows. No, all of doesn't the care of what he does. Doesn't care. Doesn't care. Yeah, and and doesn't he says things that just aren't even remotely true and can be disproved even on the spot. Yeah, when he says them. Yeah, I think which is the point is not to make it seem like he's telling the truth, but to make people distrust everything. So it's kind of like a coup on language meaning something. So we've really got to watch out for that. I don't know what the fix is because language only works because there's this tacit agreement between us that we have a mutual understanding of it, but that can break down really quickly. Mm. And once you misunderstand somebody and you you go down that path, that can you can end in all kinds of hot water and war yeah. and and things just from yeah or choose to misunderstand them mm. yeah you can you can think well they're being deceptive so i can just disregard everything that they say and everyone that they're connected to mm. because you make things fit your own narrative what a time to be alive i know i know it's sort of a fascinating time though isn't it at the same time it's this real tug of war between hot being horrified and terrified and then also fascinated and um, drawn into it all as well yeah no I preferred living in a boring time <laughs> I really did mm, yeah yeah I don't know I yeah I completely agree I I don't know if you feel this sometimes people can find what happens so funny in a way just with Trump and with all of the things that are happening and I've moved so far beyond finding it funny and just yes I'm terrified yes it's not funny at all no no <laughs> it's not it's not it's um we both have voices that um it's important now, isn't it, to be out there speaking and, and trying to say things that are important and truthful and, you know, contributing. Yeah, yes. And I think there are lots of ways to do that. Uh, when when Trump got elected, the day after I was at a radio conference in Chicago and a lot of the American radio producers were very upset and they were saying, oh, we have to stop doing the show that we're doing and just make shows about politics now. And I thought, no, because firstly, that will mean there are a lot of bad politics shows around. And secondly, people need some relief. <laughs> and um, 
just to get through the day. I, I got so many emails from people after that saying, I've been listening to your podcasts because otherwise I am freaking out too much to go to sleep. And um, I think that's a valuable service we can provide. I don't want to have to talk about politics. I don't think my political opinions are particularly useful <laughs> to anybody. What I can provide, hopefully, is some distraction from the pain of being alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, 100%. Well, that's what comedy and art is, isn't it? it I mean, it can also be a reflection of all of that, the the difficulty of being alive, but it's also an escape pod. Yeah, but it can yeah. be difficult to provide that escape when you're hurting as well because uh, my country is self-annihilating in a fairly uh, terrible way. So we had a real run of it with Brexit and then a few months later, Trump. And uh, I did not feel at all funny then. I really felt like I totally lost my sense of humor. And then it came back in this very warped, hardened way. <laughs> <laughs> so you're now warped and hardened, but still podcasting. So that that's good yeah. to hear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you use that now, that sort of fear for your country and things in your work because I, I I did see that the illusionist is much more political in a, in a way than obviously answer me this is yeah I think the longer that I've spent examining language the more political I find it um I found it just f fascinating at the beginning I'd always been very interested in in how the English language works that's the one I have most familiarity with it's a very unusual language but you can't avoid the politics in the way that it's used without denying how language works. So sometimes I'll get people complaining that they're like, stop making it political. And it's like, well, it is political though. And I'm not trying to use the show overtly to make people vote a particular way or whatever. But mm. I do think that it's important to be kind and language is a very big way in which to do that and in which to be empathetic. And so the show is just nudging people towards that without being too explicit about it. Mm. I think that's the best advice for life in general is to be kind, isn't it? Yes. Mm. It's underrated. Mm. Super underrated. And listening, which I think is what podcasting brings to you, just that ability to listen and hear what's actually being said by someone, not what you overlay, except, you know, maybe Trump, but, <laughs> you know, what you overlay on to someone rather than listening to actually what they have to say. Well, I'm just going to ask you one more question because okay. I'm, I'm sure you're pretty exhausted and it would be freezing in Tasmania. I'm it's sure, so rainy. <laughs> yeah, it's rainy here too. It's just pouring. I can hear we've got a tin roof at the moment and I can just hear it pouring away. You've made a lot of things. You ride and pod and knit and, you know, um, quilt and all these things. Is there anything you want to make that you haven't got to yet? Ooh, uh, I'm pretty bad at thinking ahead. And I think it's partly so that I don't get fixated on things that I would love to do but can't. But I would love to make a sitcom. I think partly because of the state of the world, the prospect of making an imaginary world is, <laughs> is becoming quite compelling. But I grew up on sitcoms and um, watching them, not on the set of. And um, I would like to know if I could do that. Don't know if I could do that. I bet you could. Who knows? Who knows? I well, I'll I'll definitely <laughs> watch it. What would what kind of show would it be? Oh, I don't know. Hopefully, not a terrible one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's always a good start, isn't yeah. it? That's always a good non terrible. Start. My favorite oh. genre. Yeah. 
<laughs> just non-terrible and funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's not be too greedy. No, no, exactly. We'll, ju- we'll just start there and see what happens. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Helen Saltzman. This has just been... Thank you for having me, Claire Tonti. Oh, you're welcome. It's just been such a joy. I've admired your work so much um, yeah. and... No, I really have. And, and I think that at the risk of sounding, I don't know, um, gushy, but it's just wonderful to have role models out there like you doing things. And for women too, as much as I hate to sort of, I know, I, I just believe that women and men are just as funny or just as terrible and, you know, trying to make it as each other. But it's wonderful to have women's voices and to have someone like you advocating for us too out there happy to provide okay well enjoy your day and thank you so much again thank you hello you've been listening to a podcast called just make the thing with me claire tonti and yes that was helen saltzman the incredible the wonderful podcaster from answer me this and also the illusionist you can find more about helen at helensaltzman.com and i highly recommend doing it even just for the pictures of the quilt that she made and the cricket dolls that she also made for her brother Righto. If you want to find more about me, you can go to at Claire Tonti on Instagram. I like telling stories there. Or over on Twitter at Mrs. Sunday Movies. You can contact the show at justmakethethingpod at gmail.com. And interestingly, for more shows from the Planet Broadcasting Network, more Australian goodness in your ears, head to planetbroadcasting.com. We have lots of fun shows for you over there and lots of episodes dropping every single week. If you'd like to advertise on Just Make The Thing, please email us at justmakethethingpod at gmail.com or contact at planetbcasting.com for any of our other shows as well. We're always looking for people who want to partner with us. So that's it from me this week. Enjoy the process, guys. Sometimes it feels like pulling teeth, but uh, other times it can be fun. So just get it done and put it out and then do it again. I think that's the best advice, hey? Okay, see you next week. Hey, this is Will and Charlie from the podcast TOEFOP on the Planet Broadcasting Network. Will, how would you describe our show to people who haven't heard it before? Uh, I would say our show is much like a modern day version of Seinfeld in that it's a show about nothing, Charlie, and that some of the early episodes really are a bit dodgier than you remember. (laughs) So if that sounds good to you, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and planetbroadcasting.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.